Hello and welcome to the Chronic Living Podcast, your need-to-know source for living with a chronic illness or disability. I'm your host, Alex Pappas, and I'll be sharing my experiences living with a chronic illness, as well as inviting others on to share their stories. So join me in shining a light on the world that is chronic living. All right, guys, thank you for joining me for another episode of Chronic Living. Today, I am joined by Alex, and she's going to share her experiences living in the chronic community. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So my name is Alex. Um, I'm 20 years old, and today I wanted to talk about my primary diagnosis and the struggles I faced trying to get diagnosed as a 16, 17-year-old girl. Um, so I'm primarily diagnosed with interstitial cystitis, uh, which is a chronic pain condition mainly affecting the urethra and bladder. And it's very rare. I mean, it often go- it's rare because it often goes misdiagnosed as chronic UTIs because that's what the symptoms present as. You have bladder cramps, your urethra hurts when you're in a flare and it feels, the best way I can describe it is it feels like you're having a UTI on steroids. Um, other common symptoms are blood in the urine, tissue in your urine, um, frequency, and also urgency, but having nothing come out when you do go to the bathroom. So like, it's just, it really makes you feel like an old person when you have this disease, which really sucks. It's like, um, it's like the number one to colitis. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When I was doing research oh. on my um, disease, like when I was still trying to get diagnosed, I actually like one of the um, suggested diagnoses was colitis, but I don't experience any bowel issues with it. So it's not. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to be talking about my diagnosis issues and it took about a year for me to get diagnosed. So I'm going to go in chronological order. I actually like put everything in order on notes to make sure I had my brain together for this because it was it was a lot and it was really stressful. Mm. Um, prepared, I like it. Yeah, I'm a perfectionist. So, and I, just to, that's why I don't do videos because I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> just a forewarning, I'm going to be talking about genitalia some at some point as well as um, pretty graphic descriptions of um, being catheterized and going to the ER. Um, so if that bothers anybody, it probably be best to dip out and not listen to this one. Here's your forewarning. Have fun. Yeah. <laughs> so everything started in um, the summer of 2017. I was 16 years old and it was summer between my sophomore and junior years in high school. I was having a really good summer. Um, I used to be really athletic, really fit. Um, I was an avid horseback rider. That summer I'd had my horse for about a year and a half and I was doing shows. I was doing at least weekly lessons. I was helping out at summer camps. I was hanging out with my friends. I was, for the most part, living like a regular teenage girl. I also had my first job and I'd gotten my license in February. So it was a really good summer or it looked like it was going to be. And then um, during July, I went tubing with my dad in the Shenandoah River, which is a river up here in uh, Northern Virginia. And Mm -hmm. I, I believe a few other states as well. And we had a lot of fun few days later, I started to feel like I got a UTI um, and I'd never had one in my life. So I didn't know for sure that's what it was, but based off of what other people had told me, I thought it was. So I went and got Azo, which is over-the-counter um, medication for controlling UTI pain. It doesn't help with the actual infection, but it really helps with the pain. And my pain went away after I took it. So I didn't, I didn't go to a doctor about it or anything. I just let it go. I thought maybe that was just a fluke and it wasn't an actual infection. Um, and so that was probably mid July. And I started like, I continued having really mild symptoms into August and it wasn't often enough that I was worried. It was just kind of like shooting pains for maybe a minute or two at a time. And then it was gone. And in August, I, um, I got my first boyfriend 
and I started uh, high school. So my junior year started up and I was really excited because I was taking a lot of classes that I was really interested in that actually led me to my uh, college major now. Um, so it looked like it was also going to be a really good year. What are you majoring in out of curiosity? Classical studies, which is the uh, study of ancient Greece and Rome and all that Ooh. culture. Yeah. That so that, yeah, it's a lot of hard work though. And so like I, oh, yeah. I was taking a uh, Latin three and an actual classical studies class that junior year. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of focus. I was also in an advanced math class, um, accelerated English, all this stuff that would make for a really heavy course load. So having a so, chronic illness <clears throat> on top of it really sucked. So at this point, going into junior year, no diagnosis, but no pain? Mild pain. It's like it's pain. nothing that I was really noticing. I was just... And just here and there. Yeah. And it didn't really make me concerned when I had the pain. I was like, eh, maybe I'm just like, I did something when I was horseback riding. Like maybe I sat the wrong way and it affected me. I wasn't really sure what was going on, but I also wasn't that concerned either. So I didn't pay attention to it. Um, so into September now that's, you know, full-blown school. We're doing all the actual coursework. We're not just doing syllabus stuff. We're getting to work. And this is when things started to go really bad, really, really quick. Um, in September, I started flaring constantly. And at the time, of course, I didn't know it was a flare. I just, I was experiencing pain pretty much the entire month, um, every day. And I tried not to miss a lot of school because I knew that year was going to be really rigorous. Junior year is the one that matters. And, um, so I, I went to school and I, like, I dealt with the pain. Um, I went home early one day, but again, I tried not to miss a lot of school and it just continued ramping up. And then in October, I had my first ER visit and it was on October 6th. Um, I was just in so much pain. When I got home from school, I told my mom, I need to go to the ER. And we went to the ER. The doctors immediately thought it was a UTI because the symptoms seemed to fit a UTI perfectly. It was just bladder pain feeling like I needed to go to the bathroom constantly and having nothing coming out and it being more painful if anything did come out. So <clears throat> I didn't me. suggest like a kidney stone. Yeah, but I wasn't having any pain like in my kidneys or anything. And I still had urine passing. It was just, I felt like I had to go constantly. And like, it, it was just, it, it looked like a regular UTI to them. And um, okay. They actually suggested, they were like, well, we're going to run an STI panel just in case you have gonorrhea or chlamydia. And I was like, well, at this point, I've only had sex once. So I don't think that's what it's going to be. But I don't you know, think if I you fucked want... up that bad. Like, <laughs> exactly. If you want to run an STI panel, by all means, go ahead. But, you know, I don't think that's it. So they ran that and it came back completely negative. Then they also ran a urine test. So I'm sure everyone's taken these at one point or another in their life. You pee in a cup all they the take, time yep they take it away and for uh, UTI they um, put it in a petri dish and see if any um, bacteria grows so they did that and when they came back they were like okay so you have hematuria which is lots of blood in your urine um, but there's no bacteria present there is no growth of bacteria at all when we tried to grow bacteria but we're still going to diagnose you with a UTI uh. so like the whole point of urinary tract infection is that you have bacteria in your urinary tract causing the pain and the symptoms. So for there to be no bacteria, but for them to still diagnose me with one, it was pretty odd, but I went with it. What did I know? You know, wasn't very versed in anything having to do with medicine at the point. So well, yeah, when you, when you're new to it, the most experience you have is like your yearly checkup. Like, exactly. I'm still yeah. alive. I didn't, Yeah. I didn't get myself killed this year. Like, yay. 
it was a steep learning curve like going into this because I'd never had like a ton of issues before I was for by 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 and large a quote-unquote normal person I didn't have you know health issues really the most I dealt with was getting put on sertraline when I was a a freshman because I was depressed and anxious um so they sent me home with di- uh, antibiotics and I continued having pain all throughout October as well. It went away for maybe a week and then it came back, but it wasn't as strong as before. So I didn't go to the ER. Um, I just kind of dealt with it, but this is going to sound a lot, uh, very similar to your story and your episode on depression and chronic living. Yep. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would feel that I was in a flare and I would know I couldn't get up and go to the bathroom because peeing always made it worse. Like that's just, for whatever reason, it makes the pain for an interstitial cystitis flare a thousand percent worse. So I would wake up half awake. I would lay flat on my back, pull my knees up. So they were um, like, my feet were flat on my bed, but my knees were together. I would put my hands in between my legs and just essentially cut my cup myself. And it wasn't like providing any relief. But for some reason, it was comforting. And I would stay in that position for the rest of the night, half awake. And that would usually happen at 1 or 2 a.m. And I got up at 6 a.m. to go to school. So like by the time it was time for me to wake up, I was still awake and I was exhausted. So I started missing a lot of school. And it was like it would either be my first and second classes that I would miss because I would just need a few more hours of sleep and I was feeling okay by then. Or it would be me missing the entire day because I was so exhausted, just physically and emotionally and mentally from having to do that. And like you said, that's when depression starts creeping in. It's, it's in those late hours when you don't yeah, feel you're like just, you have anything. You're just sitting there. You're not doing anything. Exactly. You're, you're not focused on anything. You're focused on the pain, which doesn't help. And like you said, you're <clears> questioning, <throat> why me? Why am I having this pain? What did I do? Yeah. And especially for me at that point, I was like, I had a completely normal life up until July. What's going on? What happened? Um, and it was really, really, really upsetting. And of course, missing school really made it worse because I love school. I want to be a professor. So that was just, you know, <laughs> yeah. it killed me. You're one of the few that loves it. <laughs> yeah. And I, got, my- I got lucky and it happened like right after I graduated. So I got super lucky in that aspect. Yeah, it really sucked for me. And my teachers got really upset with me. Um, They didn't understand it. They didn't get it. I'd be like, listen, I had to, you know, I stayed up all night because I couldn't sleep because of this pain. I don't know what to tell you. And they just weren't very forgiving at all. Um, I mean, a a lot of people aren't. And and that's a big thing is like people don't understand because they've never experienced anything like it. And it's like, I'm happy that you've never been in this level of pain for this long. But it really sucks that you just can't understand and empathize with what I'm dealing with. Exactly. Like, like I know you can't fix it, but cut me a break. Like, I'm still showing up. You got kids that call, you know, skip out on school because they stub their toe. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm in here with, like, broken arm, broken bone kind of pain and mm-hmm. acting like I'm normal. Yeah, and it, just, it takes no energy, really, to be an empathetic person, to try to be understanding. Because you just want someone to be understanding for you as well. So you need to shove that to other people. And I didn't get that, um, which just, you know, really sucked. So like I said, symptoms all throughout October, waking up in the middle of the night um, and like towards mid to late October, I was like, all right, this sucks. I'm going to go see my GP. So I will preface this and the rest of the experience of my diagnosis with saying my general practitioner was a pediatrician. Yep. So Yep. He wasn't really experienced <laughs> with chronic illnesses. Um, 
especially ones pertaining to urethral issues. Um, yep, because up until else, 18, you're, you're a kid. Yeah, for everything else I saw him, yeah, for everything else I saw him for, he was amazing, like a really good doctor, but this is just like, uh, kind of bottomed out. It wasn't that great. So I went in and I saw him. And he looked at all my ER tests because our medical systems are all linked up and stuff. He gets the charts and everything. Um, he agreed with the UTI diagnosis, even though there was no bacteria presence. Um, he ran another STI panel because why not, I guess, even though I'd still only had sex one time. Um, and then he sent me home. You're a teenager. Why would it only be once? Like, who's, who's going to believe that? <laughs> right? Like, why would you ever believe me? Even my mom leaves the room and I tell you, look, it's only been once. I'm not lying. And the panel they ran at the ER was negative, but you know, why trust that one? Um, so after that, he sent me back home and he said, just keep an eye on it. If it gets worse, let me know. So went home and that was, like I said, mentally October. And then come November 1st, I have another ER visit. And this one is the, in the middle of the night. And my mom is on a work trip at this point, like halfway across the country. And my stepdad is the only one home with me. And we don't have a great relationship so for me to wake him up in the middle of the night and be like, I need to go to the hospital, it meant a lot. It was probably the worst pain I'd been in up to that point. So we rushed to the ER. Um, of course, the doctors, as soon as they saw me, they thought it was just another UTI again. Uh, and this time they said, you know, we think you're having these UTIs so close together because of your horseback riding. And I was like, that doesn't really make sense because I'm not riding on my urethra. Like that's just, it's like you're sitting in a chair. That's not how you sit on a horse. But I went with it anyway. Cause I was like, you know, again, what do I know? It could Maybe. be. Yeah. These, these people get paid way more than me. So, you know what, they, they might, they might have some, some sort exactly. of an idea. And they go to school, like, you know, they go through years of schooling to make sure that they're good with this. They, you know, they do their theses and their, all their training and stuff. So like, they have to know what's going on, right? They have to be smart. Um, and then they ran another STI test, of course, came back negative. They ran another urine test. And for this one, when I went to the bathroom and I peed, it looked like cranberry juice came out of me. I'm not even yeah, kidding. That's, <clears throat> that's bad. It's, that's how much blood was in my urine. And I wasn't dehydrated because um, I drank a lot of water. So it was just straight blood. And like I said, it hurts a lot to go to the bathroom in the middle of a flare. So me being at the hospital and literally pissing blood, you, you can imagine how much uh, pain I was in. Um, and when the nurse came in, he was like, whoa, that does not look good. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know. Thank you. Like, yep. Nope. Another, another casual day. Like, yeah, <laughs> no big deal. You guys so, don't seem to care. So it's like, whatever. Really? Like they were so lax about it. And I was like writhing and crying in pain in this hospital bed. And of course it just took them, you know, hours to do anything um, as ERs are wont to do. So urine test came back again, obviously hematuria, like that's just I don't even need a test to tell me that time um, and no bacteria. But again, they diagnosed me with a UTI. And this time they're like, you should go to your um, uh, general practitioner and follow up with him about this. It's like, okay, thanks. So I went home with more antibiotics um, and I go see my GP and I have another STI test. So this is my third one. You think they you know, would know by now I don't have an STI if I'm having recurrent pain. Out of curiosity. Mm -hmm. When you're having constant pain, wouldn't it hurt to have sex? 
Yeah, it actually does. It's a big like, trigger for interstitial cystitis. And um, a lot of women who have IC, they have to take vaginal Valiums to have sex. Um, so, so this like, is a constant issue and that's what they keep questioning. Like, yeah. Hey. They keep going back to me being a teenager and having sex, which I was not having sex at that point. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's really frustrating. It's already getting to the point where it's humiliating. And I've already had a ton of doctors asking me, are you wiping correctly? Are you peeing after you have sex? I'm like, um, I know how to wipe properly. Thank you. That's not the issue. <laughs> and I'm not having sex. So peeing after sex also isn't the issue. Uh, it's just, it's so frustrating and infantilizing that they were asking me that. Like, dude, I'm not an idiot. Like, come on. How fucking stupid do you think I am? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, Jesus. Yeah. It's like, hey, do you wipe your ass? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Are you sure? Exactly. Like, you sure you didn't miss once? And just so ridiculous. Are you in a hurry and just skipped and just like left it? And, like, <laughs> I don't know what Jesus. they were thinking. To Did be you quite forget honest. to breathe today? Like, is that why you passed out? Did you just forget to breathe? <laughs> like, yeah. So all the stuff that they ask is just so fucking stupid. It blows my mind. They were just constantly going along with that line and STI tests and being like, oh, you might have chlamydia, you might have gonorrhea, it could be all this. Um, and so my, like I said, OBG, or not OBGYN, my GP ordered another STI test, came back negative, and he ordered an abdominal ultrasound. And this is when I was like, oh, maybe they're actually listening to me because I'm getting an ultrasound of my entire stomach done now. So I went and got that done. Um, they looked at my, uh, my uterus, they looked at my kidneys. Um, try to look get a good look at my spleen and um, nothing oh my bladder of course and nothing showed up as abnormal so came back completely negative did um, they um did they do like a dye test and what is it a cat scan or mri no this was just a regular um ultrasound at this point he just wanted to see if there was like anything very obviously <clears throat> structurally different but there wasn't i mean Oh, I've had those done before. Like if you have bleeding going on and they can't mm -hmm. figure out where it's going, they put dye into your yeah. bloodstream with like an IV and yeah. you just sit and I think it's like a CAT scan or MRI and it shows up mm -hmm. when they run it. So the they fact that they didn't do that, like just blows my mind because I feel like that'd be fairly easy to figure out where it's coming from. They weren't worried about the blood because they knew they where just, that was coming from for the most part. It's not like it's rare to see in UTIs unless you have a very severe one. So they thought I was just having severe UTIs with bleeding. So they weren't concerned about the blood. And neither was I really. I was just like, okay, I mean, it feels like I have glass shards in my urethra. It makes sense that I have blood coming out, you know? Um, so after that, I just, you know, came back negative. GP was like, eh, I don't know what it is really. It could be chronic UTIs. So that's when I started to do my own research. And but I will at this point, you haven't been to like an OBG, right? No, no. And like, I'm, I already like, know at this point, it's not an OBGYN because I know <laughs> this is where we got into a genitalia talk later on, but it's, I know my vagina from my urethra. It's com two completely separate anatomies. Like I would hope my doctor, <laughs> I would hope my doctor would know too. Um, so like I said, I started researching and I'm going to preface it by saying I am not a huge advocate for self-diagnosis because that's, it can get really dangerous if you do that. But there comes a point where if your doctors aren't listening to you, if they're not advocating for you, if they're not standing up for you and no one else is, you have to do it for yourself. You have to research and really like look into everything, get some good evidence, good facts and present your case to your doctor and be like, this so, is what I have. 
I wouldn't, I wouldn't even consider that self-diagnosis um, because when you're going to your doctor on a regular basis, and especially doctors that don't have specialized like areas of practice, whether mm-hmm. it's your, your general practitioner or your primary care, or even like an ER visit, educating yourself on opportunities and information, whether it's your medication, the symptoms you're having, and kind of helping narrow things down is super important. Yeah. Because it lets you ask your doctor proper questions. And I think pushing your doctor possibly in the right direction, Mm -hmm. especially at this point where they're just fucking running the same three tests over and over again. Yeah. Um, Everyone should be doing that all the time when you're dealing with something, you should be trying to learn as much as you can about either your symptoms or if you're diagnosed, your diagnosis. And the reason being is, especially if you have a rare version of something, or like in my case, you have a severe version of something, most doctors don't deal with that. I mean, for my example, in my entire doctor's practice for gastroenterology, I think I'm like one of like five people that has severe colitis or something. Like there's not a lot of us because it's not very common. And then on the severity list, I fall on the high side of the severity So I'm like, my case is even less common. It's like Mm -hmm. one in a thousand, I think, rough. Wow. I had the conversation once. So asking questions and getting the information to help your doctor is not a bad thing because sometimes you might just have a version of something that they've just never experienced before. Yeah. So looking into it and asking like, hey, could it be this? Could it be that? They might not even be thinking it's something related to it, but then they can run the proper test and be like, hey, you know what? maybe it is that let's run this, this, and this to rule that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that's what I was doing at that point. Um, And I had the help of my uh, close friend, Mackenzie, who I'm still friends with. She um, is also disabled. Um, And my mom, we were all researching it together. And when we, you know, searched on Mayo Clinic for my symptoms, the top three results were ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, and interstitial cystitis. And I wasn't having any bowel issues. So Interstitial cystitis was kind of what we landed on, and I fit the bill perfectly. So, made another appointment with my GP to propose this. I walked in, I told my mom and I agreed and told him, We think it's this. And he immediately shot me down. He was like, You're too young, and your symptoms don't fit interstitial cystitis, which they literally did. There's not many symptoms outside of bladder pain, uh, urethral pain, urgency, and frequency for interstitial cystitis. And there's also no age range for like a specific age range for IC. It can happen in very young children. It can happen in very old people. There's no set age where it'll pop up. Um, But I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, okay, you know, that really sucks that it's not this, but whatever. So he refers me um, to a urologist at this point. And uh, I scheduled that appointment for December. But throughout November, I was still having lots of pain and so I actually quit my first job um, because I was missing so much work or having to leave early in the middle of shifts because I was in so much pain and I didn't have anything to help with it and I I forgot to mention but my doctors weren't prescribing me any pain medication they were suggesting I just take ibuprofen and see if that helps so I was trying NSAIDs and analgesics and nothing was helping and at that point I wasn't smoking weed or anything or using CBD so I really had no option and I was just having to suffer and nothing was helping at all. Um, so then going into December, I think it was either the first or the second of December that I had my first urologist appointment. And um, for those who don't know, a urologist deals with the bladder and urethra. 
And generally when you walk into a urology office, you're seeing a lot of old people. And even my doctor, Bad. what was that? <laughs> That's like colitis. Like I go to the gastroenterologist <laughs> and everyone's like 60 plus. Yeah. And it was really like, you know, it's embarrassing to walk in and be 17, 17 at that time and be like, wow, I'm the youngest person here by far. Like the next youngest person here is my mother. So that's, um, that's true. You know, what? I didn't even think about that because when I was 17, my gastroenterologist was actually a pediatric gastroenterologist. Mm -hmm. So it was in the opposite end of, of weird because I was around a bunch of like six yes. to 12 year olds and I'm just this like pretty much adult with like a beard and a mustache just <laughs> chilling with like a bunch of kids it's always yeah, weird they're like sure playing with the little toys that they have and the little like connect the dot and mm -hmm. put the shapes in the right hole in the lobby and I'm just sitting there like on my phone like this is weird yeah yeah so like like you said opposite end for me and I was getting a lot of looks like why is she here um so met my urologist and he was a very old man um who had been practicing since the late 60s so very old, very set in his way, had learned a completely different type of medicine than what people were learning in 2017. Um, and he did his own uh, ultrasound on my bladder when I got there. And he was like, you have a severe chronic UTIs, that's it. So we have three options for you. You can take cranberry pills because they are supposed to help with um, UTIs and preventing them. Cranberry you can take, pills. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, it, honestly, like the oxidization um, of the cranberry pills for whatever reason helps regular people with UTIs. I mean, I, um, I know they're good for like normal yeah. like urinary stuff, but uh, it's been going on for what? How many years at that point too? Not, not any years. It was uh, six months about. Oh, six months. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. But still like if it's six months, like come on. He said, you can do that. You can take nightly microbials to prevent infections, or this is the real kicker. He said, we could dilate your urethra. And that is exactly what it sounds like. You're catheterized. Horrible. Yeah. You're catheterized with like a spreader and then oh they God. dilate your urethra by at least a few centimeters. And that's a really archaic practice that they practice in the sixties and seventies to help women who had chronic UTIs. And it, you know, it's hor it sounds horrifying. Like that, that sounds like a form of torture, like something you would see in Saw or something. Ugh. So yeah. nope. I, of course, opted for the cranberry pills first. I was like, you know, I let's not take an actual medication because I've always been like really wary of taking medication for whatever reason. Oh, so, I've been on enough to tell you it's, it's, it's a good option not to take yeah. medication when you don't have to just because yep. of the side effects. Oh, I listened to that episode too with your guest. I forget her name, but that was, you know... <clears throat> I felt very bad for both of you. I think I've had a couple more that I've interviewed that haven't posted yet because I have like 10 more scheduled and I think I have like five more I have to edit. <laughs> I had yeah. like a hundred people respond to all my posts. Yeah, there's a lot in our specific group below and that was crazy. So yeah, yeah, I have a, it's a very, I mean, it's a common thing. A lot of the, a lot of the medications cause a lot of issues. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to when I can start using um like CBD THC combos. The oh oil. yeah, I know. Yeah, but it's gonna be a while. Um. So, yeah, I I took the cranberry pills, and he said just take them every day. Take one every day, and you should be good. So I started doing that, and then uh go to the second weekend of December. My birthday was in late November, so I always do my party like um first or second week of December, and. I wake up the morning up, it's a Saturday and I'm feeling okay. I'm having some mild discomfort, but I'm like, okay, this should, you know, I can deal with this for the rest of the day. 
So my mom and I start running errands, like go pick up my cake and, you know, other party supplies. And I'm really looking forward to the rest of the day because I have not been hanging out with my friends. I haven't been seeing people. I've been shutting myself away essentially because it's so embarrassing to have to cancel last minute. It makes you feel like a piece of shit and people start thinking you're a flake. So you just start not doing anything because you don't want to keep doing that. Or you stop getting invites. Yeah, exactly. Um, And as someone who like, you were talking about it too. I didn't have much of a social life to begin with. Nope. So when all this started happening, I was like, well, <clears throat> fuck, I really am alone now. And like, I didn't, I didn't go horseback riding because I didn't, I thought that would make me flare. I thought that was the cause. Um, so I stayed away from it really. And that was like my main hobby. I loved horseback riding. Um, so that Saturday, I'm really excited. We're running errands and about halfway through our errands, I feel a very bad flare coming on. And like, it's, it's a not akin to the one where I had to go to the ER and was pissing blood but it's just it's getting there pretty quick um and so my mom like we met we went home in the middle of errands didn't get to finish anything that we wanted to do and I am bawling on the couch because I'm thinking I'm gonna have to cancel the party which I was really looking forward to um and I I have nothing to help with the pain so my mom calls the emergency line for my pediatrician and he talks to me on the phone while I'm like you know sobbing and he says he's going to prescribe me Vicodin and my mom can go ahead and pick it up from the, uh, from the pharmacy right away. So she does and she brings it back. I take the Vicodin. Um, after a few hours, I'm still not getting any relief. And it was a pretty good dosage of Vicodin. I can't remember how much exactly, but it was a good dose and it did nothing for my pain. Um, but it, my pain started subsiding a little bit, not due to the Vicodin, but because I was chugging milk, which that helped me for whatever reason. Very, very random fix. Yeah, right. Um, so Just drink some milk, you'd be good. <laughs> yeah, my pain went away a little bit. <laughs> and uh, all my friends, hey, whatever works, right? Yeah, right. At least, you know, it did something. Um, my friends came over and I just kind of grinned and bared it throughout my party, um, still in pain with the Vicodin doing nothing. Um, and then pain just continued on throughout December, just getting worse and worse. And so I went back to my GP in January of 2018 and I told him like, listen, it's not getting better, even with the cranberry pills. So he proposes that I might have something called strictures in my urethra, which is essentially scar tissue in your inside of your urethra or bladder. And my mom and I thought that it might be possible because I'd been catheterized when I was four years old, when I was in the hospital. So there could be scar tissue from that, right? So he ordered something called a voiding cystourethrogram. Um, And I scheduled that operation, not operation, I scheduled that test for February. So I go in in February and what happens in a VCUG is you, um, you lay down on doggy pads. I'm not kidding, literal doggy pads. Like Um, the training pads for dogs when you're training them. Yes, yeah. Okay. they catheterize you, they pump your bladder full of contrast, and uh, they put an x-ray video machine uh, above you to monitor your entire abdomen, essentially, and they watch your kidneys, your bladder, and your urethra as you pee, like you pee in front of your doctor on the doggy pads. So obviously really humiliating, and to make it worse, when I was catheterized, I was screaming. And you're not so, supposed to scream when you're catheterized. Like, I'm already had... this straight. Yeah. Potentially, 
being catheterized at a young age could have caused the issue. Mm-hmm. So the way they test for it is <laughs> catheterize you again. Obviously. Yeah. Makes sense, right? Where they could potentially cause more damage because mm-hmm. scar tissue is yep. not as flexible, doesn't slide with anything as well. So, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Just, just making sure I'm all right. Yeah. Let's check the issue by, let's see if this is a potential problem by repeating it. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. It makes sense. It sounds you know, great. Doc- doctor logic. So like when I'm getting catheterized by the nurses, I start screaming and you're not being catheterized is never comfortable for anybody, but you should never be screaming. So like the nurses, it just feels uncomfortable. It's not supposed to hurt. Yeah. So the nurses are all thinking like they did something. And this one nurse, she was like, just my saving grace that day. She was holding my hand and like wiping my tears away. Cause I was screaming and crying. Cause I was in so much pain and like, you know, they checked and everything was fine. It was like, okay. So they just said, don't move. You know, it might help like the pain a little bit if you don't move at all and we'll get this done as quick as possible um and the nurses were all very surprised that my mom at the other end of the hall didn't hear me screaming because it was that bad so my uh, the radiologist comes in they pump me full of contrast which is the weirdest feeling ever because it's not warm liquid it's cold liquid going into your bladder the opposite way <laughs> um very odd and then i'm laying on the table and the radiologist says okay go ahead and pee and he's a male radiologist and it's just, it's very uncomfortable because I'm having to pee in front of a radiologist with a catheter in. And it's really hard to pee when you have a catheter in your urethra still. Um, so it it's a procedure that's supposed to take 30 minutes. It took me an hour because I just couldn't do it. I was really embarrassed and like, you know, if, if it was just peeing on something like a hospital bed or something normal, I would I think I would have felt a lot better but I was being made to pee on actual literal doggy pads that you used to train a puppy. And it was just- so They couldn't put you in like a shower and you just piss in the shower, like, you know? Nope, <laughs> nope. they, you know, <laughs> they had to use doggy pads. <clears throat> that's so really that's terrible. So, that's so fucking weird. Yeah, really terrible. Um, eventually I did it and uh, I went home and you know, I was just still in so much pain. Um, and we got the results back later in February and there was nothing wrong. My kidneys were flushing fine. My bladder was fine. There were no strictures in my urethra. So at that point, I gave up on doctors. I wanted to avoid them because that was humiliating and so painful. And I did that test for absolutely no reason. Yeah. If my doctor, if my doctor ever told me like that was going to be a test for something, I would tell them to go fuck themselves. (laughs) Like just write, like, go fuck yourself. I don't like, no, that sounds that sounds like one of those weird kinks that they fucking interview people on that are like in love with their car. Yeah. Or, my strange know, like, addiction. Yeah. Yeah. The strange addiction. Like, yep. Yeah, nope. I like having my patients pee on doggy pads. Like, yeah. What? Yeah. It's just like, you know, it's, it was mortifying, mm. honestly. And, you know, like th- I was thinking about it earlier today. And I was honestly tearing up because it's just, it's, it was so embarrassing. And so I did not want to see any doctors because I didn't want to risk having to go through something like that again. So um, from February until June, I didn't see any doctors. And in April- Just just pushed on through it. Yeah, and like I was still experiencing pretty bad amounts of pain um, and missing a lot of school because of it. And in April, I started getting really suicidal because I was in so much pain all the time and there was no reprieve, no medication was helping. And still like I'd only been given Vicodin or Peridium um, as a pain 
uh, pain reliever and peridium is used for UTIs and like it helped somewhat, but you know, it didn't really do the job. So I'm just suffering constantly. I, my school is suffering. I'm really not doing well in Latin three, which I was really good at Latin. So I should have been doing well, but I was not. Um, yeah, you, I mean, you can't focus on things. That's exactly that's, that's the big thing that comes with this pain is like simple tasks are hard enough as it is. But when you need to take and use actual brain power, like you're not sleeping, exactly. you don't have the energy, you're not getting the essentially recharge that you need every night. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and yeah. the lack of sleep messes with people when they try to focus on things, let alone a massive amount of pain constantly on top of it. It's like, oh, yeah. it's like a mind numbing pain. Yep. And, um, it just, it was not going well. I didn't have a social life. Like there would be a few weeks, maybe in between flares where I would feel okay. And so I'd try to have a boyfriend and, you know, just it, the pain would come back. So it wouldn't work out. And I was just exhausted constantly. I didn't want to go out anywhere because I was terrified of having a flare out in public and not being able to just go back and lay in bed and, you know, sob about my pain and not be able to deal with it. So, um, like I said, I got really suicidal because I just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to kill myself. I just didn't want to have to deal with the pain. And that was like looking as the only way out. Um, you know, luckily I, I'm, I'm still here. Um, I, I dealt with it. I had some friends support me, but it was really rough to get through it. Um, and I mean, finally- that's, that's a challenging thing that people deal with when they have a diagnosis mm-hmm. and they're just adapting to whatever they have, let alone yeah. if you're just dealing with something that everyone like nobody can tell you what the issue is exactly I had no idea what was wrong with me I didn't I did not see an end like there was no light at the end of the tunnel for me it was just horrible and dark and the worst thing I'd been through at that point um and so didn't see doctors but finally my pain got bad enough that in June I went back to my GP and I was just I was fuming because no one had listened to me and I was so done so I told him off I was like I was just really tearing him up one wall and down the other I was like no one's listened to me you haven't listened to me no one's taking me seriously I've been in this pain for almost a year now my mom is the only person who is listening to me when I'm in this pain my friends don't like you know I don't hang out with anybody anymore you need to do something and I oh by the way I don't have any medication to help me so what he did he said I think it's time to go to an OBGYN because I think it's gynecological related and I was just oh my god that made me even more pissed off because I was like after do you know <laughs> do you know human anatomy like at all because those things don't really you know go together that much um unless you have like chlamydia or gonorrhea which we ruled out so it's probably not gynecological related um but the one good thing he did was he gave me tylenol threes which are a very uh, mild opioid and I, I was still a little bit scared of taking opioids at that point because where I live in Northern Virginia or lived in Northern Virginia and where I live in West Virginia now, um, opioids were a really big problem and still are. Like the opioid epidemic is huge around here. And so I, you know, I'd seen people personally be affected by it and I was scared to take them, oh, yeah. but it was, it was the only option I had. <laughs> and Tylenol threes, um, if anyone's ever taken them, you can't stay awake when you take them, they put you to sleep. And that was the only way I had to deal with my pain. So like I had a new job at this point. And if I was in pain that day and I needed to take my medication, I'd have to go home, still leave early, still not really have much of a life if I needed to take my medication. Um, But hey, at least I had something and it did help with the pain. So scheduled my OBGYN appointment for later that June. 
I immediately, I, you know, I went to her and as soon as I saw her, she was like, this is not gynecological related at all. I can already tell. I'll still run the tests, but I can tell you it's not this. And I was like, thank you. Um, so I also told her about my issues with my previous urologist. And she was like, I'm going to recommend you to a urologist that works in the same hospital as me. Her name is Dr. Moreno. She is amazing. And I think she will be able to help you. Um, so I scheduled an appointment with her and all my OBGYN tests came back negative. So it was nothing gynecological related. And in July, I go to this new urologist and I have printed out a like, a ca- not a calendar, but essentially like another chronological list of every single thing that's happened to me in this journey. Like going to the ER, what they said, what tests they did, what my uh, GP said, because I'm fed up and I'm like, I'm serious about it now. I'm really serious. And I'm going in expecting her not to listen to me again. But I tell her everything that's happened. I show her everything that's happened. And she goes, have you ever heard of interstitial cystitis? And I'm like, wait a second. You're not about to diagnose me with what I told my GP I had in November. And she did. She was like, you are a very classic case of interstitial cystitis. Um, She was like, it's very unfortunate that your doctor didn't listen to you in November because we could have been helping you this entire time. We have medication that can help. There's no cure. There's no no known cause, but I could have helped you. So Um, that's a big thing. Like, like I talk about it from time to time when it comes to doctors. Um, And everybody really needs to understand when you suggest something to your doctor and they tell you, no, you need to tell them to shut the fuck up and run the (laughs) test because you want it done. Now, the only thing your doctor should say when you want a test run that doesn't make sense to them is they should explain one, how much it could potentially cost if it's not Mm -hmm. covered in your network. Two, brief explanation of why they don't think it is. However, still leave the ultimate decision up to you. Because yeah. one, you're paying them, both you and your insurance, if you have insurance, paying your doctor's office to do their job. <clears throat> um, and at the end of the day, you are in control of your healthcare, 100%. You make mm-hmm. all the final decisions. I mean, unless you're, you know, unconscious for whatever, in yeah. you know, certain emergency circumstances, you, if you can't make the decision, but <clears throat> when you're going in for tests and stuff, you make the decision at the end of the day. Because mm-hmm. I've talked to too many people and I've kind of dealt with it a little bit in the past when doctors don't listen to you. But at the end of the day, you're paying them to do a job. And it's any other, like I look at it, any other job. If I find a graphic artist and I want a logo made for my company, if I tell them to make it purple and it looks like shit in purple, I don't care. I told yeah, them to make just, it purple. You want it done. Same oh. exact thing applies to your doctors. Like if I want this test run and it doesn't hurt me to run it and it doesn't cost an astronomical amount of money run the test and like i totally would have done that it's sure with ic there are no tests there's nothing to confirm that you have ic it's a process of elimination um like there's literally nothing (laughs) because like well your bladder your bladder and urethra when you have ic for the most part they look fine you can have these things called hunter's lesions inside of your bladder that it's a lesion essentially obviously Mm -hmm but it's not all that common. It doesn't really occur all the time with people who have IC. So it's just figuring out, okay, well, nothing else is here. These are your classic symptoms of IC. You're having them, you have IC. Um, I mean, so, I, I guess in that case, it could have been like, well, if it's yeah. that, we can give you this medication. If it doesn't work, we can roll that out. Like Exactly, yeah. So <clears throat> um, 
what she did, what my, what Dr. Moreno did, and I'm so fine with sharing her name because she's like just an amazing doctor and people are constantly looking for urologists that actually listen to them. So like go see Dr. Moreno. She's amazing. She loves everybody. She's just perfect. Um, she prescribed me something called Eurogesic Blue, which is a, an amalgam of a ton of different medications, but it's primarily an antispasmatic and it does help um, prevent flares and kind of help subside them when you are having one, but not that much. Uh, so I was told to take it four times a day. And by the way, it makes your urine like a lovely teal color. I mean, I'm not even kidding. There's no yellow, no clear. It's just pure teal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know having a little fun right (laughs) having a little fun with your medication some fun with it yeah um she she gave me that and she also gave me an elimination diet to do because i see for what we can tell for the most part is really triggered by acidic foods and drinks so like tomato sauce um spicy foods you know so i had to cut out you know pasta essentially because i i don't really like white well i can't eat white sauce this is like the peeing version of colitis. Mm-hmm, exactly. So like, I had to. You can't have acidic stuff with colitis. Yeah. And at um, least my, you, you gotta limit the acidicness. Yeah. So I had to cut out a lot of foods that I liked and, you know, just again, elimination diet, add things in, add things back in gradually to find out what, um, what makes you flare. But it's also, it gets flared by stress too. So there's no real telling, you know, when you'll flare or why you'll flare. And there's no known cause. There's no cure, minimal treatments. And the treatments are often very times expensive or oftentimes very expensive, I meant to say. Um, like people, people will get their bladder removed um, and have essentially an ostomy bag, but it doesn't help the pain for whatever reason. It's like, no one knows what's going on and there's no research done. So we don't know, we won't know for a long time probably why this is happening. Um, but anyway, so she gave me that medication, gave me the elimination diet and said, I'm going to run one more urine test on you, but it's not going to be a regular one. Um, in July of 2018, which is where we're at at that point, a new technology had really recently been released and it would um, find specific DNA strands of bacteria in your urine so that you could know which bacteria you were having, it's like what was causing the issue. Um, and also it would tell you if an antibi- if you had an antibiotic resistance, which by this point I'd had like six or seven antibiotics. So I was scared that I did. And so I do that. I come back in the next month for the results. It's August now. And she's like, good news, no antibiotic resistance. And I'm like, thank God. Cause that would just kill me. Um, but also badish good news. You have E. coli embedded in your bladder, and that's what's really been causing your pain. Like you have IC, definitely, but this is making it worse. And oh, puppies! <laughs> um, I I immediately knew how I'd gotten that E. coli in my bladder. If you live in Northern Virginia or if you live around the Shenandoah, you know that it is pretty routinely just a wash with E. coli. And they'll have swim advisories like, "Do not go into the river. There's too much E. coli." And that, got it. <laughs> that summer they had told us they were like you know there's e coli present but it's not too bad you can still go in the river and have fun so i did but that's how the e coli entered my bladder is through tubing with my dad in the shenandoah and uh so she put me on really strong antibiotics because it was embedded and my uh the e coli went away we did another test made sure it was gone and it was and um 
I just, I, after that, it was just, you know, trying to manage my pain and live a lifestyle where I was able to figure out how to prevent flares, but it was a steep learning curve. And I was still like, you know, I had to, the biggest issue afterwards was grieving my teenage years because I would no longer be a regular teenager. I couldn't go out and do things normally. Um, and it really sucked. And then a few months after I got diagnosed with IC, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which makes it even worse. So like now my body's just aching constantly for whatever reason. And there's no known cause for either. You know, PTSD is often looked at as a cause for fibro and that's probably the cause for mine, but there's nothing much you can do. Um, so that's, you know, that's my story of diagnosis as a 17 year old girl and like having to fight with male doctors because it wasn't until I got my two female doctors that I was actually listened to. And I know it's a really, really common story, unfortunately, with a lot of people specifically who have IC and also just women in the, uh, you know, the chronic illness community in general. So funny enough, today's episode, Ireland was 11 when she started having issues with dysautonomia and she's currently 16. So she ran into a lot of the same diagnosis oh. issues for a different, I mean, different illness, but mm-hmm. just in general. Yeah, yes, so. it's a very common thing. Very common thing, unfortunately. A lot of sexism. And, you know, I'm sure the fact that I didn't have a male figure coming with me to appointments also added to it. Like, it's just my mom. And she's like a really fiery presence. If you get her pissed off, you don't want to deal with it. Um, like, she's worked in corporate America for over 30 years. So she's, you know, learned how to be very assertive. But still, it was another female with me, not a male. So neither of us were being listened to. And it just really sucked um well that's and that's why i try to do these these podcast episodes is try to educate people like if you're going to your doctor with legitimate concerns and they're not listening find a new like you need to find a new doctor or you need to get a second third fourth opinion you need to find somebody that's going to listen to you because i say it all the time at the end of the day you know your body the best oh yeah absolutely Um, especially like if you've been dealing with something for a long time and something changes and your doctors aren't listening to you Mm -hmm. like i've had colitis for 10 years i know my body pretty fucking well i know what the triggers are i know what bothers it granted some things change and every once in a while a random thing that i used to be able to eat or drink comes along and messes me up pretty good um but you need to be able to kind of draw those lines with your doctor and understand that it is fully acceptable you're not being an asshole you're not being needy you're going to someone you're paying for a service they need to do their job yeah and luckily i've learned that now like I'm very assertive with my doctors because I know my body and like I'll, I go to my OBGYN and it's time for me to get a, um, a pap smear done. And I'm like, no, nothing is going inside of me because I know that will hurt and I'll probably wind up in the hospital. And I actually, um, great news. I, two weeks ago, I got approved to get, uh, my tubes removed. So my fallopian tubes are getting removed. And that's really good for me because if I got pregnant, I don't know what would happen. Um, it's, 50 50 in the IC community, you either go into remission when you get pregnant or it gets 100% worse. So, Island up to 9,000. Like, yeah, <clears> like, sounds horrible. Any pregnancy I had would have ended in an abortion. But if I had an abortion, I would also have to go into the hospital. It wouldn't be an outpatient procedure like it is for most women because they would be ripping something out, you know, going inside and ripping it out essentially. And that would cause me a huge flare. I just know it. So, like I, I was very started with my OBGYN. She's the one that I saw that referred me to Dr. Moreno. I was like, listen, I need to have this done. I cannot risk getting pregnant. I don't know what it would do to my body. Um, and it's just, you know, we, 
it's really hard in the IC community to get people to listen to you, but being in a community that is so ignored really and put down, you learn quick how to do it. You have to. Well, yeah, because at the end of the day, it comes back to it's your body, your decision. And <clears throat> I mean, yeah, when it, I, I, it's like a more extreme version of birth control, but there shouldn't be anything yeah. wrong with making that decision. If you decide, hey, I don't want to have kids. This is, you know, this is a high risk mm-hmm. when it comes to my health, especially in the long term. Yep. Let's take care of it now. Like yeah. that should be a fully acceptable conversation with your doctor. Yeah. And it's becoming, you know, I think it's becoming more and more acceptable for like for doctors when they hear that someone wants to get their tubes tied. I think more often they're saying yes, but it's still an issue. I don't see why it's such an issue too, because like guys can go get a vasectomy whenever they want yeah, and nobody really questions it. And it's something like I've definitely thought about before because, you know, colitis is mm-hmm. a hereditary disease. Yeah. Um, so it's always been a thought and I mean, hell, nowadays, if you want a kid, you can always adopt, right? Exactly. And that actually, you think colitis is hereditary brings me up to something I wanted to cover. Um, so like I said, we don't know the cause of IC. Like there's, we, we have made tons of guesses, you know, hypotheses, theories, but there's nothing that- You know the good chance of what triggered it. Yeah. Just not what keeps it there, essentially. Yeah, what, why it was there in the first place, too. Which is also um, very similar to colitis. Mm-hmm. And like I said, no research, is be- no research is being done. But in all of my IC Facebook groups, I'm a part of a lot, people have these wildly different symptoms, but they're all diagnosed with IC. And like, you know, chronic bladder pain or chronic urethral pain is always the linking part of it. But we don't like, there's not really uniform triggers for IC. So I've like, I've kind of created my own theory that um, IC is somewhat of an umbrella term currently, and there are tons of different diagnoses under under it. Um, and I'm thinking like one day, hopefully we'll have more research done on it and it'll be something like EDS where like, I think there's 12 subtypes, um, but still nothing's being done. So we can't know. We don't know what to do to prevent it, what to do to actually take care of it, why it's happening. People have gotten their nerves blocked. Uh, for their bladder and urethra to try to help it and that helps but like that's so extreme um so that's you know that's another reason why i don't want kids it's because it could be hereditary but no research is being done so we don't know why like why it is there yeah and that's i mean that's a that's a big concern and i know well i know my generation and under have been starting to have a lot more health related issues and Mm -hmm the whole having kids be it becomes a big conversation and it's something especially when you when you get down to the dating part it's it's an important conversation to kind of have on early early on to kind of figure out because it's a legitimate concern like Mm -hmm. is it something that can be passed on i mean hell when i first had colitis some people thought it was like fucking contagious like i could (laughs) give them colitis like no yeah it's it's not gonna spread like it's just if we create a human it might spread but only to the created human, like not, not to you. Mm-hmm, um, exactly. But it's, I mean, it's a legitimate, legitimate question because a lot of diseases are hereditary and each, you know, illness, disease, I think some, you know, disabilities as well. Well, I guess colitis is a disability. It's at least a, yeah, it's, it's acknowledged disability. Um, so that's hereditary too. It's a, it's a legitimate conversation to have with both your doctor 
Yeah. Um, even if it's not something you're planning anytime like soon, it is a it's it's an important conversation to have. Because for some people, it might be like, yeah, no, there's an 80% chance. And if there's an 80% chance, like it's just no, no, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah, I, it's, it's enough to not want kids. Yeah. Like I'll I'll go adopt a kid that needs yeah. needs a family. Like, no, I'm not gonna create a child and be like, yeah, there's a 20% chance we're gonna roll the dice and hope that you don't have to deal with this in your lifetime. Like. Yeah, and possibly force this horrible thing onto them. Especially with chronic illnesses and, um, you know, these these diagnoses becoming more common in kids. Mm-hmm. Like Crohn's yeah. and colitis used to be something you would get in your 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. That was when you would get it. It was 40s and 50s, things started changing and it would start to flare up. Now it's like kids are getting it. Yeah. It went from 40s to 50s to when you're a teenager, now just fucking anywhere. It's just, it's, you know, it's crazy. And, you know, when research isn't done on disease, it makes it that much worse because you don't know what paths to actually take. So um, uh, one last thing that I thought of um, that I didn't mention during my chronological thing because it didn't pop up during that time. But um, there is a TV show on Netflix called You and it's a really good show. And in the first season, there's this side character named Peach. who the main character is really close with their best friends and Peach is jealous of the main character's boyfriend. So at one point, Peach storms into the main character's apartment and she's like, I have interstitial cystitis. I'm having a flare. I need to go to the hospital. And she's walking around fine. She's not having any issue. She's like, she looks like she's absolutely okay, not in any pain. And earlier in that season, she'd been drinking champagne and orange juice and alcohol and orange juice are two of the like biggest triggers, like universally in interstitial cystitis. Um, and they, Netflix used her interstitial cystitis as a plot point to make her seem more narcissistic and more jealous and attention seeking. And I, I just have to always put it out there when I'm talking about IC, that's not what IC is. If you're having an IC flare, you're crawling on the floor in pain or you're on the toilet crying in pain. It's not, oh, I need to go to the hospital. I'm being dramatic. I need to go. Someone needs to take me. Um, I just had orange juice and, uh, and champagne, but I was fine then. And now I'm in pain. It's not that. And they did it so horribly and I was so pissed off. It's like, it, I, I couldn't believe it. They paid no attention to IC at all. I'm like, I just, I always have to put that out there. It's not what IC is actually like. Hey, Netflix, you fucked up. Big time, big time. They just use it to make her seem more dramatic. And it, it just, if people see that and then they meet me and I say, I have I see, like, you know, what are they going to think about me? Are they going to think I'm narcissistic, that I'm faking it, that it's just, you know, it's all in my head, that's conversion disorder. Like, it's, it's not cool. I mean, as much as it sucks to say, if someone's at that point where they're using a netflix episode to reference how you feel and what you're dealing with yeah you probably don't need them in your life absolutely anyway. not like, you're good you're but good. it's also it's also the only representation of ic that i could you know you can find in popular media um so you know just always gotta make sure people know not to go by that talk to an actual person with the diagnosis and see what they feel like when they're in a flare don't just go off of that right well, and that's and and that's a big part of this podcast in general is because so many people are dealing with so many different things, but there's a lot of people in the U.S. that have a major health issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's CDC says it's about it's like 
48.4 or 49.4. I, I looked it up. I, I looked up how many people have major health issues in the U.S. And it's like almost half of the United States deals yeah. with it at some point. So the fact that we still have to explain this kind of thing to people um, and it's not more commonly talked about and part of why, you know, I'm trying to pull all the groups together because we all deal with so much crap. Yeah, yeah. And I say it a lot, like 70% of it is a same, same across the board. Doctors aren't listening to you. Yeah. Medications, being misdiagnosed, mental health, mm-hmm. you know, restrictions on your life and everything, your day-to-day life and having to deal with the changes on it. And then there's that like 20 to 30% that your, your diagnosis, your disease, your disability. So kind of talking about and educating it, it's like healthy people that don't have to deal with anything are going to be the minority in the U.S. soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chronic illnesses are going up. Colitis has been going up over the past 20 years, you know, 15. So from 1999 to 2015, colitis went up by only 6%. It was 0.09% of the U.S. population in 99 and 1.4 or 5% in 2015. Yeah, which you can look up a lot of the larger diseases on the CDC's website, and they'll give you statistics on how it's changed over the years. Um, some of them will break down costs. You can look up, you know, the population, how many people it affects, mm-hmm. and they'll update it every once in a while. I think right now, 2015 is the most recent update because they take a while to update that kind of thing. But yeah, chronic illnesses, disabilities, you know, mental health issues are becoming a lot more common. And yeah. on the mental health issues, COVID did not help with that at all. Oh my gosh, no. It's been skyrocketing from COVID because everyone's stuck inside and, you know, they're, they're stuck with their time and their mind. And that's not always a good thing. No. And oftentimes, like you'll see uh, mental illnesses accompany chronic illnesses, like physical illnesses, because it's just it's hard not to be mentally affected when you're living this life that's really limited compared to what you might've been living before or compared to quote unquote regular people. Um, So, and I I think a big part of the reason that diagnoses are going up and like there's a growing population of disabled people in the United States, it's because doctors are learning more and more people are speaking up and not, you know, not being so stoic and quiet as our past generations, as our older generations. So like if my mom was in a lot of pain, she, you know, she wouldn't probably go to her doctor and say, Hey, I need to get this figured out. She wouldn't go through like a year or more of testing to figure out what was wrong with her. But I think as you know, the generations progress, people are more cognizant of their bodies and more cognizant of the fact that it's okay to be disabled. Like it's not a bad thing. Um, so yeah. Well, and, and the mental health side of it, um, kind of really pushed me to do this podcast. So I've, I've been wanting to kind of focus on it for quite a while now, probably like four or five years. Um, and I kind of shut myself off from the world because my parents went through a de- bad divorce and my dad was essentially an asshole and used everything he could against me, including my insurance. So yeah. I didn't really talk about a lot of things to anybody. So it took a while to kind of get back to the point of being like, hey, this is what I deal with. But <clears throat> two and a half years ago now, because I'm in a lot of the colitis and Crohn's group um, groups in general, there was a 10-year-old boy who got bullied because he had a colostomy bag because he had either Crohn's or colitis and he had to have surgery, take out a part of his intestine, they put a little bag in. He ended up killing himself 
oh when his God. mom went to the store because people bullied him so much over it. A little 10-year-old boy. Oh, my gosh. And that was something. It was all over the colitis groups, and that kind of hit. And it's like, you know what? Because I, I kind of always look back at when I first got diagnosed, because that was the absolute worst part. Like, I've been in remission now for quite a while. I have the occasional issue, and you know, I get, like, you know, booster med here and there. But... <clears throat> Knowing how bad it was and how improperly I handled it, it's really important to kind of talk about the mental health and how you're treated with it because hundreds of people every day, if not thousands, tens of thousands of people are at that point. They are at that point. They're ready to just kill themselves so they can get rid of the pain. And that's unacceptable because they don't have the support system that they need, whether Mm -hmm. it's the people that they're normally around you know, dealing with all the different changes. So it's really important to talk about. Absolutely. It's, it's really important to make it more visible um, because I think as you make it more visible, it becomes more normalized and there becomes more support for it. So like people will become more understanding. They'll be more empathetic, hopefully. And when you see just the general populace changing, you also see like, eventually you'll start to see legislation changing. So like something I'm a huge proponent of is um, voluntary euthanasia for people who are chronically ill and terminally ill and just can't deal with it anymore. So like if you have um, a complex regional pain syndrome and like that's the worst pain syndrome you can have, if you want to, you know, if you want to die because it's just too much and you don't want to live the rest of your life with no cure, I think you should be allowed to have, you know, allowed to choose euthanasia and do it properly. Um, But that's not going to happen until we start looking more at the mental health aspect of what it's like to live with chronic disorder, a chronic illness. Um, and as, as that gets more, like I said, as it, gets, as it gets more normalized, then you'll see more people pushing for a change, but we're not there yet. So I think it's really good that you're doing this podcast and that you're also like bringing up the mental health aspects of it because it's so huge and it plays a huge part in how your body feels too. Mental- I know when I'm more depressed or more stressed, I go into a flare for fibro and IC. So it's really big to focus on that. Mental health is like the most taboo thing in America to talk about. Yeah, and I, don't I could get list it. off everything I'm into sexually, and it is perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Perfectly okay. It doesn't matter how weird it gets. It's just whatever. It's what you're into. No big deal. As long as it's consensual, perfectly fine. God forbid I want to bring up the fact that you know dealing with something kind of you know makes me depressed, or yeah. dealing with something long enough that's bad enough make someone suicidal like the world just ends like oh my god you need to we need to put you in a little comfortable like pillow box and you can't interact with the world exactly like we should be able to have legitimate conversations about mental health like hey this is how i feel and this is why it's because this one instance is what's causing it and once this is fixed or understood the depression like lessens, the thoughts lessen, you know, like it balances out. But the problem is in America, especially once you get older and you're in a career, God forbid you say you're dealing with depression and suicide when you have a career. Yep. Like you can't do that if you have a, have a career because then they'll yeah. just be like, well, okay, you're not mentally stable. You can't work for us. We don't want to deal with that. And it makes everything worse. There needs to be system set up to kind of be like, hey, it's, you know what? We all deal with stuff here's some support for it. And, you know, if it's bad enough talking to professionals, but a lot of the time people just either want to vent or they want to understand that they're not the only one dealing with something. Yes. 100%. And 
the U.S. is very bad, very bad at putting this label on, okay, because you're dealing with something, because you're in a place where you're, you know, depressed, suicidal, you're weak. You're the weakest you've ever been. Where on the flip side, you're at the strongest point you've ever been because you're dealing with an immense amount of pain. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with so much emotionally, physically, mentally, and every day you decide, yep, okay, I'm going to get up out of bed today. Exactly. I'm going to get out of bed today. I'm going to go to work no matter how much it sucks to go to work, no matter how much I'm pain I'm in, I'm going to at least try. And if I get there, if I, you know, if I get to school, if I get to work and it's too much, I'm going to go home because I need to take care of myself. And people give you shit because, oh, well, you, you know, you're not performing or you're not doing good enough because you, you can't come to work. Instead of being like, yo, we appreciate you coming in for as long as you could. We understand you're dealing with some shit. Go home, feel better. Yeah. Which is how it should be handled. Like you're dealing with oh, a lot. Oh yeah, absolutely. There needs to be more of an understanding around it because God forbid you say you're feeling bad and people just make you feel worse. Like you're yeah. less than because you're you're not just like sucking it up. Yet you have people that, oh my God, they got the flu and their, their, their stomach hurts a little bit. So they have to go home and stay home for a couple of days. Yeah, and I actually have really personal experience of like in, enduring uh, discrimination in the workplace because I'm disabled. So um, oh, at God, my, so much. I dealt with that so much right? after the hospital. At my previous job, I worked at a bank and um, I was a part-time teller at a fairly busy branch. And I um, I didn't call out very often because I, I hate calling out. And I was at a pretty stable place with both my fibro and my IC. So I was, you know, at work a good portion of the time. Um, but, you know, maybe three times, four times that I was there, I would I would either have to leave a little bit early or I would call in and say, I can't come in today because my pain's so bad. Well, one morning comes and I'm supposed to be opening that morning at 7.15 a.m. with my uh, teller line coordinator. Um, so I was actually, I was in West Virginia at that, that night before spending the night with my boyfriend. So I had to drive an hour and a half to get to my branch. So I woke up at like 5 a.m., which is way too early for me. And I was supposed to work until close, which is 7.15 to 5.30. So I get into the branch and I can already tell like it's going to be a really, really bad pain day. But uh, my coworker comes in at 1030. The not my coordinator because he's already there, but my next coworker to come in comes in at 1030. So I'm like, sent you your next coverage. Exactly. I will wait until 1030. I will, you know, keep quiet until then I'll deal with the pain and the pain is just consistently ramping up and getting worse and worse. And it's a fibro flare. So like it hurts to stand. Um, and you know, my manager, he knew that I had a disability disabilities and he knew that occasionally I'd needed to go home. So at 1030, actually a little bit after when my coworker came in, I, uh, took him to the back room and I was like, Hey, I really need to go home. I'm in a lot of pain. I can't do this today. I'm really sorry. And he goes, Alex, you have a lot of accidents. I was like, um, you know, I wouldn't define me having fibromyalgia and having a flare as being an accident, but if that's what you want to call it, sure. I I, I didn't know how to respond to that. I was just kind of like struck I'm by so, what he I'm said. I'm so bad. I'm an asshole of people. I've got I've got so I have I have a handicap placard and mm-hmm. I have handicap plates and I've gotten used to dealing with people. Like if I pull up at Walmart because I go oh, to yeah. the bathroom or whatever, I, I get used to dealing with people. God, you have a lot of accidents. Oh, oh God, I would have yeah, right? ripped them a new one. Like, you know, 
you were an accident, but we try to just call it your birthday every year. Like, it's okay. Like, we I don't just, need to compare. That was so mortifying. And it was the first, like, discriminatory thing I'd had said to me like that. Like, I'd never faced something like that. You know, I'd, of course, I'd heard, you don't look disabled or you look fine. You act that's, fine. Yeah, you get but, that one a lot. That's, that that's I'm so one. used to but him saying you have a lot of accidents like when I'm disabled I'm sorry I can't really help that I wish I could I wish it was just an accident but this is my body this is what I have to deal with for the rest of my life um and so just like a month after that I quit because I was just so fed up with it um but like yeah bringing disabilities and mental health like more to the light and making it more acceptable is really important because if it was I wouldn't have dealt with that at work at a place that's supposedly very equitable and diverse it's it's super important because there's especially nowadays there's so many diseases there's so many disabilities that are invisible Mm -hmm. that you can't see that are both physical and mental that people deal with that you just don't I mean you don't know about and so many people are dealing with it. It's not like it's like one in a million people that deals with this. It's half of people have a major health issue in the U.S. Some of them they might be able to fix, but you know, not all of them are fixable. Yeah. And even even if somebody's dealing with something health related, they still go through a lot of the stuff, whether it's a one time thing or a chronic thing. You still deal with the crappy doctors, the things that you have to change. It's just those of us that have chronic illnesses deal with it twenty four seven. Yep. Um. So, you know, there's no discrediting people who, who feel bad or, or get the flu. Like you get a taste of what we get every day. Exactly. You exactly. get sick. That's like, you're down for three days with pain. Like we have that all the time. Every and day. your pain was the mild version of what we get. We get it 10, 20, 30 fold. Mm-hmm. And we have to act normal. Like you guys shut down completely as a human being because you get very like you get food poisoning or something like food poisoning is mild compared to Crohn's and colitis when you're flaring up like food poisoning is like a walk in the park hell yeah sure I go for a colonoscopy and I'm in the bathroom more than people with with food poisoning and that's by choice like I gotta cleanse so I mean maybe the you know the pain doesn't go along with the cleanses but still it's just you got to understand. And for those of you that, you know, for those people that don't understand, like you're going to deal with it at some point, somebody yeah. in your family, a close friend, you, you know, a kid, one of you, if you have kids down the road, one of them might deal with one of these chronic illnesses. So you being an asshole to someone that's dealing with it now, like there's a good chance in 20, 30 years when you yeah. have a family, you're going to run into it again and it's going to be someone you're related to. So what are you going to, you're going to treat them like shit? Absolutely. And like, as you get older, you're going to get your own disabilities, your own chronic illnesses. Women, when they get older, as you've talked about, you know, it's very common for them to develop osteoporosis. And if you're being an asshole to someone who's young and dealing with it now, like, what do you think is going to happen to you when you get older? Like people are generally nicer to elders because it's expected for them to have that. But what if you develop it at like 50? What if you get something wrong with you at 40? What do you expect to happen? And what if you're so nice to people who have cancer, understandably, why can't you be like that to the rest of us who didn't choose to have this happen to them? No one did. Well, it should, you know, it should extend all the way. And the thing is too, you know, if you see an old lady crossing the road in a walker or wheelchair, you help her because it's understated that she's been through some shit. She's gotten to the point where she's old and now her body's failing out. That old lady 
if she's starting to have problems in an old age, she got to have a fully functional, normal life. And now that she's older, as you get older, your body just deteriorates. There's a lot of us that are 20, 30, that are Mm -hmm. dealing with the exact same level of pain and body dysfunction as people that are 70, 80. Absolutely. And we still have to have a career because we can't retire. Nope. And we got to pay bills. We got to do things like being on disability in the United States is an absolute joke. So like, that's not an option. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how people afford disability, like living on disability because with colitis, I could technically fill it out. And especially when I'm in a flare up, I technically qualify for it. I personally don't want to, because I've done enough side businesses. I've done enough things on the side where I would make more than $8,000 a year doing something because I would get bored mm-hmm. and you can't do that when you're in disability. Like, yep. so I, I know that most of the time I'm functional enough to have a job and to do things on the side. So I don't need that money. That's for people that are bedridden all day. Yeah, absolutely. Go, you know, go file for it, go fill it out. They can't go to work. They can't function at all ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it just blows my mind because so many people are going to be exposed to this at some point in their life and the level of intolerance and ignorance around it. Yep. Like you don't have to understand it. And being someone that has a handicap plate that gets questioned on it from time to time, I don't also have to explain it to you. My explanation can be like, go fuck yourself. It's not my responsibility to educate you. You can do that yourself. It's not my responsibility to make you a more empathetic person. If I want to just kick you in the ass because you pissed me off by asking, do you really need a handicap placard? I can do that. But when someone asks me about handicap, I just tell them to call the cops. I'm like, just call the cops. Yeah, yeah. You have a problem absolutely. with that's the only person I have to justify it to. And I literally just need to show them my little my little handicap card and my license. That's yep. it. And yep. they can ask me if the car is registered to me. That's it. I, had- I, I also do not, like, this is another thing. You do not have to explain why you are handicapped and parking in handicap oh, to a no, police officer. Not. No. That is 100% doctor patient confidentiality so if you have a handicap placard if you have a license plate and you ever get questioned the only thing you have to provide if you're using the placard they give you a little tiny card that comes with it that has your name has all the information and it matches the number of your placard and then you have to show your id to verify that you're that person yeah with your car i'm pretty sure you just have to verify your registration but i've only i've always just showed my my little card because it's easy like yep here's my card here's my license if the DMV has given you that, like there's a reason they've given you that. Mm-hmm. And I wish regular people would understand that because I had a handicap placard for a time and I actually, I really need to get it renewed. I just didn't follow up with getting it renewed. But um, when I so, would go and park at my college campus, like the first time I did it with my handicap placard, I got out of my car and, you know, I wasn't using my cane that day because I felt good enough to walk without my cane, but it still hurt to walk. So I didn't want to park at the back of the parking lot. I got so many stares because I didn't have a mobility aid. I didn't have anything with me that made me look disabled, but I'm still disabled. And I still got all these stares. And I just wanted to shout and be like, just look away. It's none of your business. If I have this placard from the DMV and I'm using it, there's obviously a reason I have it. And it's not for you to judge. It's not your business. I, I get I get less shit now that I, I shaved my head and I have a beard because I look more intimidating. Um, but and and I, I would get the looks because, you know, you pull up to the parking lot in Walmart and I zip right in like I'm not having a problem getting in the building. The problem is I need to get to the bathroom in the building. 
it's not that I haven't, it's hard to get inside. It's hard to get inside in time. Like I will run in if I can, but running doesn't work when you have to go. Yeah. Um, Another like quick fun fact, the placards are more challenging to renew than the plates in most states. So license plates, when they come up for renewal, you can renew online. You do not need to fill out another form in most states. You can just automatically get it renewed where the placard, a lot of the time you have to take that form back to your doctor. Your doctor has to refill it out and then you can get it renewed. If you have a plate, you can renew your plate. And when your placard comes up for renewal, you can automatically renew your placard off of the plate. Yeah. So that's, that's an important thing for people to know. Yeah, and the reason I didn't get mine renewed is because this was so annoying. And this shows you that not all doctors are as understanding as they should be. I got my placard from a rheumatologist, and they only give out placards for six months. So you have to go back every six months and fill out a new paperwork, take it back into the DMV, get your new handicap placard sent to you. And it's just like, do you know how difficult that is for a disabled person to do? Like if I was more disabled than I am, that would be really hard. Like it's already difficult enough for me to do. Like I'm a college student. I had a job when I was doing that. I had other things to do than to go back in, get you to fill this out, take it back to the DMV and wait for my new placard to come in. It's just so ridiculous. And, and that's one of the things too, like your conversation with your doctor when you're doing it, especially if it's someone you see on a regular basis or a specialist, should be pretty straightforward. My conversation with my doctor was, hey, can I get a handicap placard? His question was, why? My response was, have you ever shit yourself in public? Exactly. He said, fair enough, and filled yeah. it out. Like that's, that's, it should be a conversation, quick conversation of, hey, you understand my pain. You understand how often I'm flaring up. You understand what's going on. Here's my justification for it. You have any issues with that? No? Okay. Can you fill it out? Like, because that's like, they got some some weird tests done, but most most humiliating thing for somebody with colitis or Crohn's is is shitting yourself in public. Yeah, and it and has happened a couple times. It's I'm not sure. fun. Yeah, I've, I've had it where I've made it to the door of my apartment, putting the key in the door, like, oh my god, and I was like, why did I lock the door? <laughs> why? Why? I I mean, but like I also. Like, I get that because I see, you know, you have the urgency, you need to go to the bathroom really, like, right then sometimes, and you're also leaking. Like, that's just something that really sucks about IC is you leak pretty frequently. Um, but, but like you were saying, it should be a really, really quick conversation, and my rheumatologist was more than happy to give me one. Um, like, I just had to ask for it, and he was like, yeah, here you go, I'll fill it out. But it's just, I don't think, even though he's a doctor, and I don't think he's get like how difficult it is for disabled people to come in like every six months and get that renewed. And it's just like, I asked if he could give me a year long one. And he was like, no, I asked another doctor in the practice. No, it's their policy. It's every six months. And he has a lot of elderly clients too, because he's a rheumatologist. So like, as we open up the discussion about disabilities, I think doctors really need to listen in too. Like, yes, you've gone to school. I get it. Yes, you have your degree. I get it. But you don't live with this. You don't really get it. You get the yeah. medical side of it. And it's it's one of those things like, well, and, and here's here's a suggestion too. And I tell people all the time, you know, you can, you can, well, I mean, not all the time, but getting a second opinion can be for a very specific thing. Like if you, if you want to go to another doctor and say, hey, look, I deal with this rheumatoid arthritis. This is what I have. This is what I do. You can even call and ask the receptionist like, hey, can I set up an appointment to get a handicap placard? Because my doctor won't do it. Yeah. Here's everything I'm dealing with. 
here's how bad it is. Is that something you guys will do? Yes or no? Okay, you have a policy against it. Thanks. Call another doctor. Yeah. Um, and, and I say that because like I have a really good doctor now. He's really good and really good at communicating. And a couple of years ago, he suggested I get a second opinion with a doctor in Richmond who deals with people that have extreme, super severe Crohn's and colitis. That's like all he does. He specializes in the severe stuff. That's what most of his patients are. And he deals with it on a regular basis. My doctor doesn't. I went and got a second opinion. That doctor in Richmond sent my doctor his recommendations. And I take Remicade every six weeks instead of every eight. Getting that second opinion or talking to another doctor for a specific purpose, there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. If you have a specialist that you deal with all the time, and they're just, there's one place where they just stand firm or it's just outside of what they normally do, or you have a specific case, find another doctor that you can do that's in the same field, the same specialist, and maybe a different firm, different practice. Um, and just ask them for it. Like you can do it one time, just go pay them a copay. Yeah. I mean, a lot of doctors are more than happy to do it because you pay your copay of like 20 or $40, whatever it is for you guys, your insurance kicks in a couple hundred dollars more. So like they're getting paid for it. And if you can say, Hey, this is medically what I have and justify it. I was really sure. Here's your paperwork, fill it out. Boom. Done. Yeah. I have a really good doctor and I can just drop stuff off at my office because it's close enough and be like, Hey, can I, can you have, you know, my doctor fill this out for me and just call me when it's ready to pick up, which if you can find a doctor's office where you can have that kind of relationship with, because it does make things easier. Um, No doctor's office is perfect. I've had I've had some issues with my billing department and I've had to kind of set them straight a couple of times, which funny enough, I went for my infusion today and I think they actually updated the infusion policy because of me. <laughs> so oh my gosh. Yeah. So <clears throat> I have a specialized test that gets done every once in a while that checks for antibodies to see if my body is building up a resistance to the medication one. My doctor's office sends it to a very specific lab in California because they're better at doing this test. They're more accurate. However, it's out of network. I was kind of arguing with them back and forth because I was like, hey, if you guys do anything out of network, you're supposed to get it pre-approved for me before you send it off. Yeah. And they're like, well, your insurance doesn't require pre-approval. I'm like, no, I require pre-approval. <laughs> I don't care what my insurance requires. I require it because it is a $500 test. So if they put a new little segment in the yearly, like, disclaimer that you sign that says if you get that test done there's a good chance it's not going to be covered under your insurance and they worked out a deal with that place where it's 120 dollars. so i'm pretty sure they updated that because i've been bugging billing about it for the past two months and kind of back and forth with them um but i already had or supposed to have in the system the requirement for pre-approvals because i had an issue with my dad changing jobs not telling me Mm. and i was covered with my the new insurance that I didn't know I had, but my infusions require pre-approvals. So I had two infusions without pre-approvals that I had to pay for out of pocket, even while being fully covered. Oh. Yeah. They're eight thousand dollars a piece. That's wow. Yep. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yep. I can't imagine that. They dropped it down to like six thousand a piece because of the whole like administering at the doctor's office because they felt bad for me. <laughs> but that's still like six grand a pop. That's ridiculous. I can't believe that that happened. Yep. Yep. Because my dad changed jobs and didn't tell me insurance changed. Wow. Mm-hmm. But um, 
but like going back to what you were originally saying, like going to a different doctor to get something you might need specifically, something wrong with that. It's advocating for yourself and you have to do that if you have a chronic illness because you're the only person that's going to do it for you. You might have great doctors, but at the end of the day, they're not going to be permanent. You have to do it for yourself. And it's, it's another taboo thing. Like getting a second opinion is oh, not yeah. cheating on your doctor. No. Yeah. And some you're, doctors do get upset about it. I'm like, because they're not getting not- paid. If that's why they get upset. What I, if you're not gonna give me what I want, I'm gonna go somewhere else. It's like if I want to go to this restaurant and they're not gonna give me the food that I want, like that I've been craving, I'm gonna go to a different restaurant and get that food. Yeah, it's yeah, you guys like you have to understand that like getting a second opinion is not cheating on your doctor. You're not married to them, you're not required to go to them. You don't sign a contract where they're the person you absolutely have to get all of your care from. They're a service, and like any other service, yeah. you have options. They might be limited due to your insurance, you know, within network stuff. Um, but another thing I want to talk about taking a day trip or a weekend trip to go somewhere that's outside of your normal area to get that second opinion, a lot of the time can be worth it. Oh, like yeah. I took a day trip to go get the second opinion out in Richmond because it's like three hours away and with traffic and everything, you know, went with my mom, we went and talked to the doctor. I ended up getting lunch and then, you know, we kind of drove back. So it was a chill day and the doctor was super cool. Yeah. Like ton of information, great guy. Um, and especially now, like getting a second opinion that's outside of your area, a lot of doctor's offices are still doing video. Virtual. Yeah. Like just connection, like talk to your yeah. doctor virtually. So you can sit your ass in one state and get a doctor's appointment in another and just do it virtually. Yep. They might yep. question it a little bit, but if it means a second opinion, it means a second opinion easy, especially for those of you that are, more immobile and don't have the option of like spending a whole day driving around depending on what you're dealing with yeah like the virtual doctor's appointments right now are a godsend absolutely i completely agree with that it's just it, you know it saves so much time and energy it's yeah. awesome call them up and be like hey boom this is what i'm dealing with here's all the information what do you recommend or hey i want to ask a question about this medication that my doctor doesn't know about and doctor's offices whether they're in the same network or not a good doctor has no problem being a second opinion and sending the information to your doctor, yes, which is super important and good because one, if you get a second opinion to get more information and that doctor sends that information to your doctor, now your doctor can treat everybody else with a little bit more information and a little bit more options because you went and got a second opinion. It's a learning experience for everybody. Mm-hmm. Like you and- don't. If, if you're a doctor, you'd never stop learning. You should never think, okay, I've learned everything that I can. No, because every disease is constantly changing. Like I just yeah. found out the other day, interviewing someone that Zeljans, which is used for arthritis, is now used for colitis. I was like, wait, wow, I've heard Zeljans before. Like I've definitely heard that commercial. Like, yeah, no, it's a, she was saying like, yeah, no, it treats my colitis. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, that's arthritis, not colitis, which- <laughs> With colitis, inflammation is inflammation. So usually a lot of things that treat Crohn's and colitis also affect things like arthritis and other inflammation in your body. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. So second opinions, third opinions, fourth, fifth, like get them as you need them and don't be afraid to do it. Like we have a lot more power than most people portray when we're dealing with our doctors. So, you know, flex a little bit here and there. Yeah, and it if my diagnosis story like tells anyone anything, I really hope they take away the message that you need to advocate for yourself. And like, if your doctor's not going to listen to you, just throttle them and make them listen to you. 
seriously. And if you have, like, if their network has um, a patient advocacy group and they're not listening to you and they're being rude to you, go to them, talk to them, get that yeah. doctor in trouble. Thank if they're you. not going to do their job, make them do it or find someone else that works better for you because there's no reason you should have to be in prolonged suffering if yeah. there's medication that could help you. And, and this is something like you should look at when you're going to doctors, especially if you're dealing with something in your in remission and you're switching doctors, you really need to feel it out because when you're dealing with a doctor, communication and respect are the highest levels of importance when you're dealing with your doctor. How do you communicate with them and do they respect the information that you are giving them? Are they constantly trying to correct you? Are they questioning information that they're giving you? Especially if you're bringing it from another doctor where you already know you've gone through a diagnosis, how you communicate with the doctor and the level of mutual respect between you two is super important. Yeah, yeah. and there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with switching from another doctor. Like if, if you go to a doctor's appointment one time with that doctor and you don't like them, there's nothing wrong with immediately finding a new doctor. Absolutely yeah. not. And if you need to, stay with a doctor for your, you know, prescriptions or for whatever it is, while you kind of shop around and look at other doctors. Yeah, exactly. Like you can have a doctor's office that takes care of your prescriptions. Maybe the doctor sucks, but they write your prescriptions. They give you your infusion. You know, they, they follow up with necessary tests and stuff that are needed for whatever you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Well, that gives you time to go to another doctor maybe on a you know, day that you have free and kind of question like, hey, you know, I'm at this doctor's office. They're not doing this correctly. And <clears throat> I had one lady that actually interviews doctor's offices before she even sets up appointments, like interviews oh, the front cool. desk when she calls to set it up. And I'd be like, hey, you know, do you guys ever do this, this or this? Or can the doctor do this? Like you bring a lot of like buying power, essentially, when you go to the doctor with how much they get paid for the tests and stuff that they run in office. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And especially if it's a doctor's office that's larger and does a lot more stuff in-house, they get a lot more kickback from your insurance when they get paid. Yeah. Like my doctor's office does colonoscopies. I get all of my infusions done at the doctor's office. So they get to charge my insurance for the visit every time I see my doctor. They get to charge them for the administration of the infusion. They get to charge them whenever I do a colonoscopy, which is pretty much every year as much as it sucks. So I bring a lot of business to my doctor's office. And that's how you have to look at it. Like you're bringing business. Yep. If you, you know, if you go to a grocery store all the time and they start doing something that doesn't agree with your beliefs, you go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. You find another grocery store. Same thing goes along with your doctors. Like if they're not doing something subpar, like if you go to McDonald's and you find like a fucking rat tail in your burger, <laughs> I can guarantee you my ass is not going back to McDonald's. Exactly, I'm going to go yeah. to Burger King because I know Burger King uses like horse meat and stuff. No, <laughs> I know Burger King doesn't have rats in their building. It's just, it's the same idea. You have to look at it as a service and a business. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit more emotional than that because of what you're dealing with. But at the end of the day, if you're not happy with what you're getting, treat it like any other service, any other business. You know, if you go to a restaurant, waiters rude day as hell to you and the manager backs them up, I'm like, okay, I'm not going there anymore. Same thing with your doctor's office. If you go to your doctor's office and your appointment is at three o'clock and you don't get seen till five o'clock. All right. You know, you ask them, hey, what was the holdup? And if you don't get a good, good answer, all right, maybe it's not time to go here anymore. Like, yeah, yep. they're consistently understaffed and I'm wasting my time. Like, okay. Go somewhere that will take care of you. Yeah. 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 And 
depending on where you live, I, I know in my area, there's so many new doctor's offices popping up and there's so many new practices because there's just such a, a demand for it. Um, there's a ton of, like I have a ton of options and even smaller areas, you have a couple options. So weigh them out. Mm-hmm. And if you have to have the conversation with your doctor, maybe you don't have a ton of options. Talk to your doctor and say, hey, look, this is what I'm not happy about. I'm really not happy with this. I'm really not happy how you've been treating this. Like, I'm going to start looking for another doctor if this doesn't change. Like, these are my expectations. These are what I, this is what I want. And if you can't do that, I'm going to start finding other people. Because at the end of the day, it is a business for them. Like the amount of people they treat affects how much money they make. So they need to keep their business running and they need to keep their patients happy. And if they're a good doctor, they should be more than willing to accommodate you and what you're asking for and have that discussion with you. Yeah. Like before an appointment, if you say, hey, look, I need to talk about some stuff that I'm not happy with. If your doctor at all shuts you down, find a new doctor. Yeah. Even if it's in the same practice, like you can have a practice filled with the same oh, bunch yeah. of doctors. Like if one of them's an asshole or if one of them you just don't vibe with and you don't get along with, ask for a different doctor in the practice. Mm-hmm. I know my doctor's office, I think there's like 10 or 15 doctors that all do the same thing. They're all like one big group practice. Yeah. I have a really good doctor. I'm super happy with and his wife is actually a primary care doctor where I go for primary care so it's super convenient um because I can reference each of them to each other and they actually understand who they are and their level of knowledge <laughs> yeah you know sometimes you're like hey you know I was at this doctor and like well what does he know or what does she know like well yep. you guys are married to each other so I would hope you understand the <laughs> level of intelligence between the two of you hopefully um, not that I go to my primary care a ton because you know everything's usually related to colitis mm-hmm. or recently COVID, but yeah, <laughs> outside of that, I don't generally get sick, knock on wood. Um, so yeah, no, like ask around, talk around, and in the first few visits, if you're not comfortable with your doctor, if you're not comfortable with the communication, and if you feel like they don't respect you, it's time to find another one. Yeah. Communication and respect are so important. Absolutely. Like, I know you got the expensive degree, but I'm also the one that help, helps pay for it. Yeah, and I'm the one living through this, not you. Yeah. Anything else you want to touch on? That's it. Kind of... Like I said, just I hope people can take away that they need to, you know, really step up for themselves if they're feeling, if they're feeling crappy and no one's listening to them. Take care of yourself. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing. I appreciate the information. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for stopping by and listening to the podcast. I appreciate everyone. Make sure you guys stop and check out chronicliving.info. Got a new website up and running that's going to be the main area to find all the social media content as well as accounts. So make sure you guys stop by. If anyone's looking to share their story, volunteer, either time or experience, there's also going to be some links on there of how you guys can get involved. As always, I appreciate you guys, and I'll see you in the next one.